Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Good to have you with me. Two stories tonight by Kate Chopin. She was born Catherine O'Flaherty in 1851, of maternal French and paternal Irish descent. She was a widely read American novelist and short story writer, known in her day as an interpreter of New Orleans culture. But she was a lot more than a regional author. She observed the world around her and the injustices women faced in society. She upset many 19th century expectations for women and their supposed roles. There was a revival of interest in Chopin beginning in the 1960s because her concerns about the freedom of women foreshadowed later literary themes and her writing influenced so many writers of a new generation. Our first story tonight is Kate Chopin's famous and mesmerizing story of miscegenation in pre-Civil War Louisiana. Desiree's Baby by Kate Chopin As the day was pleasant, Madame Valmondé drove over to Labrie to see Desiree and the baby. It made her laugh to think of Desiree with a baby. Why, it seemed but yesterday that Desiree was little more than a baby herself, when Monsieur, in riding through the gateway of Valmondé, had found her lying asleep in the shadow of a big stone pillar. The little one awoke in his arms and began to cry for Dada. That was as much as she could do or say. Some people thought she might have strayed there of her own accord, for she was of the toddling age. The prevailing belief was that she had been purposely left by a party of Texans whose canvas-covered wagon late in the day had crossed the ferry that Cotomais kept just below the plantation. In time, Madame Valmondé abandoned every speculation but the one that Desiree had been sent to her by a beneficent providence to be the child of her affection, seeing that she was without child of the flesh. For the girl grew to be beautiful and gentle, affectionate and sincere, the idol of Valmondé. It was no wonder, when she stood one day against the stone pillar in whose shadow she had lain asleep eighteen years before, that Armand Aubigny, riding by and seeing her there, had fallen in love with her. That was the way all the Aubignys fell in love, as if struck by a pistol-shot. The wonder was that he had not loved her before, for he had known her since his father brought him home from Paris, a boy of eight, after his mother died. The passion that awoke in him that day when he saw her at the gate swept along like an avalanche or like a prairie fire, or anything that drives headlong over all obstacles. Monsieur Valmondé grew practical and wanted things well considered, that is, the daughter's obscure origin. Amand looked into her eyes and did not care. He was reminded that she was nameless. What did it matter about a name when he could give her one of the oldest and proudest in Louisiana? He ordered the corbeil from Paris and contained himself with what patience he could until it arrived. Then they were married. Madame Valmondé had not seen Desiree and the baby for four weeks. When she reached Labrie, she shuddered at the first sight of it, as she always did. It was a sad-looking place, which for many years had not known the gentle presence of a mistress, old Monsieur Aubigny having married and buried his wife in France, and she having loved her own land too well ever to leave it. The roof came down steep and black like a cowl, reaching out beyond the wide galleries that encircled the yellow stuccoed house. Big, solemn oaks grew close to it, 
and their thick-leaved, far-reaching branches shadowed it like a pall. Young Aubigny's rule was a strict one, too, and under it his negroes had forgotten how to be gay, as they had been during the old master's easy-going and indulgent lifetime. The young mother was recovering slowly, and lay full length in her soft white muslins and laces upon a couch. The baby was beside her, upon her arm where he had fallen asleep at her breast. The yellow nursewoman sat by a window, fanning herself. Madame Valmondet bent her portly figure over Desiree and kissed her, holding her an instant tenderly in her arms. Then she turned to the child. "'This is not the baby,' she exclaimed, in startled tones. French was the language spoken at Valmondet in those days. "'I knew you would be astonished,' laughed Desiree, at the way he has grown, <laughs> the little cochon de lait. "'Look at his legs, mamma, and his hands and fingernails, real fingernails. Zandrine had to cut them this morning. Isn't it true, Zandrine?' The woman bowed her turbaned head majestically. "'Messie, madame,' "'And the way he cries,' went on Desiree, "'is deafening. Armand heard him the other day as far away as La Blanche's cabin.' Madame Valmondet had never removed her eyes from the child. She lifted it and walked with it over to the window that was lightest. She scanned the baby narrowly, then looked as searchingly at Zandrine, whose face was burned to gaze across the fields. "'Yes, the child has grown.' "'Has changed,' said Madame Valmondet slowly, as she replaced it beside its mother. "'What does Armand say?' Desiree's face became suffused with a glow that was happiness itself. "'Oh, Armand is the proudest father in the parish, I believe, chiefly because it is a boy, to bear his name, though he says not, that he would have loved a girl as well. But I know it isn't true. I know he says that to please me.' "'And Mama," she added, drawing Madame Valmondet's head down to her and speaking in a whisper, "'he hasn't punished one of them, not one of them, since Baby is born. Even Negrillon, who pretended to have burnt his leg that he might rest from work, <laughs> he only laughed and said Negrillon was a great scamp. Oh, Mama, I'm so happy, it frightens me!' What Desiree said was true. Marriage, and later the birth of his son, had softened Armand Aubigny's imperious and exacting nature greatly. This was what made the gentle Desiree so happy, for she loved him desperately. When he frowned, she trembled, but loved him. When he smiled, she asked no greater blessing of God. But Armand's dark, handsome face had not been disfigured by frowns since the day he fell in love with her. When the baby was about three months old, Desiree awoke one day to the conviction that there was something in the air menacing her peace. It was, at first, too subtle to grasp. It had only been a disquieting suggestion, an air of mystery among the blacks, unexpected visits from far-off neighbors who could hardly account for their coming. Then, a strange, an awful change in her husband's manner, which she dared not ask him to explain. When he spoke to her, it was with averted eyes, from which the old love-light seemed to have gone out. He absented himself from home, and when there, avoided her presence and that of her child, without excuse. 
and the very spirit of Satan seemed suddenly to take hold of him in his dealings with the slaves. Desiree was miserable enough to die. She sat in her room one hot afternoon in her peignoir, listlessly drawing through her fingers the strands of her long, silky-brown hair that hung about her shoulders. The baby, half-naked, lay asleep upon her own great mahogany bed that was like a sumptuous throne with its satin-lined half-canopy. One of La Blanche's little quadroon boys, half-naked too, stood fanning the child slowly with a fan of peacock feathers. Desiree's eyes had been fixed absently and sadly upon the baby while she was striving to penetrate the threatening mist that she felt closing about her. She looked from her child to the boy who stood beside him, and back again, over and over. Ah! It was a cry that she could not help, which she was not conscious of having uttered. The blood turned to ice in her veins, and a clammy moisture gathered upon her face. She tried to speak to the little quadroon boy, but no sound would come at first. When he heard his name uttered, he looked up, and his mistress was pointing to the door. He laid aside the great soft fan, and obediently stole away over the polished floor on his bare tiptoes. She stayed motionless, with gaze riveted upon her child, and her face the picture of fright. Presently her husband entered the room, and without noticing her, went to a table and began to search among some papers which covered it. Armand, she called to him, in a voice which must have stabbed him if he was human. But he did not notice. Armand, she said again. Then she rose and tottered towards him. Armand, she panted once more, clutching his arm. Look at our child. What does it mean? Tell me. He coldly but gently loosened her fingers from about his arm and thrust the hand away from him. "'Tell me what it means,' she cried despairingly. "'It means,' he answered tightly, "'that the child is not white. It means that you are not white.' A quick conception of all that this accusation meant for her nerved her with unwanted courage to deny it. "'It is a lie. It is not true. I am white. Look at my hair. It is brown.' and my eyes are gray, Armand, you know they are gray, and my skin is fair, seizing his wrist. Look at my hand, whiter than yours, Armand, she laughed hysterically. As white as La Blanche's, he returned cruelly, and went away leaving her alone with their child. When she could hold a pen in her hand, she sent a despairing letter to Madame Valmondé. My mother— they tell me I am not white. Armand has told me I am not white. For God's sake, tell him it is not true. You must know it is not true. I shall die. I must die. I cannot be so unhappy and live. The answer that came was as brief. My own Desiree, come home to Valmondé, back to your mother who loves you. Come with your child. When the letter reached Desiree, she went with it to her husband's study, and laid it open upon the desk before which he sat. She was like a stone image, silent, white, motionless, after she placed it there. 
In silence, he ran his cold eyes over the written words. He said nothing. "'Shall I go, Armand?' she asked in tones sharp with agonized suspense. "'Yes, go.' "'Do you want me to go?' "'Yes, I want you to go.' He thought that Almighty God had dealt cruelly and unjustly with him, and felt somehow that he was paying him back in kind when he stabbed thus into his wife's soul. Moreover, he no longer loved her, because of the unconscious injury she had brought upon his home and his name. She turned away like one stunned by a blow, and walked slowly towards the door, hoping he would call her back. "'Good-bye, Armand,' she moaned. He did not answer her. That was his last blow at fate. Desiree went in search of her child. Zandrine was pacing the somber gallery with it. She took the little one from the nurse's arms with no word of explanation, and, descending the steps, walked away under the live oak branches. It was an October afternoon. The sun was just sinking. Out in the still fields the negroes were picking cotton. Desiree had not changed the thin white garment nor the slippers which she wore. Her hair was uncovered, and the sun's rays brought a golden gleam from its brown meshes. She did not take the broad, beaten road which led to the far-off plantation of Valmondé. She walked across a deserted field, where the stubble bruised her tender feet, so delicately shod, and tore her thin gown to shreds. She disappeared among the reeds and willows that grew thick along the banks of the deep, sluggish bayou. She did not come back again. Some weeks later there was a curious scene enacted at Labri. In the center of the smoothly swept backyard was a great bonfire. Armand Aubigny sat in the wide hallway that commanded a view of the spectacle. It was he who had dealt out to a half-dozen negroes the material which kept this fire ablaze. A graceful cradle of willow with all its dainty furbishings was laid upon the pyre which had already been fed with the richness of a priceless layette. Then there were silk gowns and velvet and satin ones added to these, laces, too, and embroideries, bonnets and gloves, for the corbeil had been of rare quality. The last thing to go was a tiny bundle of letters, innocent little scribblings that Desiree had sent to him during the days of their espousal. There was the remnant of one back in the drawer from which he took them, but it was not Desiree's, it was part of an old letter from his mother to his father. He read it. She was thanking God for the blessing of her husband's love. But above all, she wrote, night and day, I thank the good God for having so arranged our lives that our dear Armand will never know that his mother, who adores him, belongs to the race that is cursed with the brand of slavery. Our second story this evening deals with a windfall of money, and in its brief space tells us, with empathy, of a working-class woman's life, its assigned expectations, and her own poignant wishes. A PAIR OF SILK STOCKINGS 
Little Mrs. Summers one day found herself the unexpected possessor of fifteen dollars. It seemed to her a very large amount of money, and the way in which it stuffed and bulged her worn portemonnaie gave her a feeling of importance such as she had not enjoyed for years. The question of investment was one that occupied her greatly. For a day or two she walked about apparently in a dreamy state, but really absorbed in speculation and calculation. She did not wish to act hastily, to do anything she might afterward regret. But it was during the still hours of the night when she lay awake revolving plans in her mind that she seemed to see her way clearly toward a proper and judicious use of the money. A dollar or two should be added to the price usually paid for Janie's shoes, which would ensure their lasting an appreciable time longer than they usually did. She would buy so-and-so many yards of percale for new shirtwaists for the boys and Janie and Mag. She had intended to make the old ones do by skillful patching. Mag should have another gown. She had seen some beautiful patterns, veritable bargains in the shop windows, and still there would be left enough for new stockings, two pairs apiece, and what darning that would save for a while. She would get caps for the boys and the sailor hats for the girls. The vision of her little brood looking fresh and dainty and new for once in their lives excited her and made her restless and wakeful with anticipation. The neighbors sometimes talked of certain better days that little Mrs. Summers had known before she had ever thought of being Mrs. Summers. She herself indulged in no such morbid retrospection. She had no time, no second of time to devote to the past. The needs of the present absorbed her every faculty. A vision of the future, like some dim, gaunt monster, sometimes appalled her, but luckily tomorrow never comes. Mrs. Summers was one who knew the value of bargains, who could stand for hours making her way inch by inch toward the desired object that was selling below cost. She could elbow her way if need be. She had learned to clutch a piece of goods and hold it and stick to it with persistence and determination till her turn came to be served, no matter when it came. But that day she was a little faint and tired. She had swallowed a light luncheon— no. When she came to think of it, between getting the children fed and the place righted and preparing herself for the shopping bout, she had actually forgotten to eat any luncheon at all. She sat herself upon a revolving stool before a counter that was comparatively deserted, trying to gather strength and courage to charge through an eager multitude that was besieging breastworks of shirting and figured lawn. An all-gone limp feeling had come over her, and she rested her hand aimlessly upon the counter. She wore no gloves. By degrees she grew aware that her hand had encountered something very soothing, very pleasant to the touch. She looked down to see that her hand lay upon a pile of silk stockings. A placard nearby announced that they had been reduced in price from two dollars and fifty cents to one dollar and ninety-eight cents and a young girl who stood behind the counter asked her if she wished to examine her line of silk hosiery. She smiled, just as if she had been asked to inspect a tiara of diamonds with the ultimate view of purchasing it. But she went on feeling the soft, sheeny, luxurious things, with both hands now, holding them up to see them glisten and to feel them glide serpent-like through her fingers. 
Two hectic blotches came suddenly into her pale cheeks. She looked up at the girl. Do you think there are any eights and a half among these? There were any number of eights and a half. In fact, there were more of that size than any other. Here was a light blue pair, there were some lavender, some all black and various shades of tan and gray. Mrs. Summers selected a black pair and looked at them very long and closely. She pretended to be examining their texture, which the clerk assured her was excellent. A dollar and ninety-eight cents, she mused aloud. Well, I'll take this pair. She handed the girl a five-dollar bill and waited for her change and for her parcel. What a very small parcel it was. It seemed lost in the depths of her shabby old shopping bag. Mrs. Summers, after that, did not move in the direction of the bargain counter. She took the elevator, which carried her to an upper floor into the region of the ladies' waiting rooms. Here, in a retired corner, she exchanged her cotton stockings for the new silk ones which she had just bought. She was not going through any acute mental process or reasoning with herself, nor was she striving to explain to her satisfaction the motive of her action. She was not thinking at all. She seemed for the time to be taking a rest from that laborious and fatiguing function, and to have abandoned herself to some mechanical impulse that directed her actions and freed her of responsibility. How good was the touch of the raw silk to her flesh! She felt like lying back in the cushioned chair and reveling for a while in the luxury of it. She did for a little while. Then she replaced her shoes, rolled the cotton stockings together, and thrust them into her bag. After doing this she crossed straight over to the shoe department and took her seat to be fitted. She was fastidious. The clerk could not make her out. He did not reconcile her shoes with her stockings, and she was not too hastily pleased. She held back her skirts and turned her feet one way and her head another way as she glanced down at the polished, pointed-tip boots. Her foot and ankle looked very pretty. She could not realize that they belonged to her and were a part of herself. She wanted an excellent and stylish fit, she told the young fellow who served her, and she did not mind the difference of a dollar or two in the price so long as she got what she desired. It was a long time since Mrs. Summers had been fitted with gloves. On rare occasions, when she had bought a pair, they were always bargains, so cheap that it would have been preposterous and unreasonable to have expected them to be fitted to the hand. Now she rested her elbow on the cushion of the glove counter, and a pretty, pleasant young creature, delicate and soft of touch, drew a long-wristed kid over Mrs. Summers' hand. She smoothed it down over the wrist and buttoned it neatly, and both lost themselves for a second or two in admiring contemplation of the little symmetrical gloved hand. But there were other places where money might be spent. There were books and magazines piled up in the window of a stall a few paces down the street. Mrs. Summers bought two high-priced magazines such as she had been accustomed to read in the days when she had been accustomed to other pleasant things. She carried them without wrapping. As well as she could, she lifted her skirts at the crossings. Her stockings and boots and well-fitting gloves had worked marvels in her bearing had given her a feeling of assurance, 
a sense of belonging to the well-dressed multitude. She was very hungry. Another time she would have stilled the cravings for food until reaching her own home, where she would have brewed herself a cup of tea and taken a snack of anything that was available. But the impulse that was guiding her would not suffer her to entertain any such thought. There was a restaurant at the corner. She had never entered its doors. From the outside she had sometimes caught glimpses of spotless damask and shining crystal and soft-stepping waiters serving people of fashion. When she entered, her appearance created no surprise, no consternation, as she had half feared it might. She seated herself at a small table, alone, and an attentive waiter at once approached to take her order. She did not want a profusion. She craved a nice and tasty bite. A half-dozen blue points? A plump chop with cress? a something sweet, a creme frappée, for instance, a glass of Rhine wine, and, after all, a small cup of black coffee. While waiting to be served, she removed her gloves very leisurely and laid them beside her. Then she picked up a magazine and glanced through it, cutting the pages with the blunt edge of her knife. It was all very agreeable." The damask was even more spotless than it had seemed through the window, and the crystal more sparkling. There were quiet ladies and gentlemen who did not notice her, lunching at the small tables like her own. A soft, pleasing strain of music could be heard, and a gentle breeze was blowing through the window. She tasted a bite, and she read a word or two, and she sipped the amber wine and wiggled her toes in the silk stockings. The price of it made no difference. She counted the money out to the waiter and left an extra coin on his tray, whereupon he bowed before her as before a princess of royal blood. There was still money in her purse, and her next temptation presented itself in the shape of a matinee poster. It was a little later when she entered the theatre. The play had begun, and the house seemed to her to be packed but there were vacant seats here and there, and into one of them she was ushered between brilliantly dressed women who had come there to kill time and eat candy and display their gaudy attire. There were many others who were there solely for the play and acting. It is safe to say there was no one present who bore quite the attitude which Mrs. Summers did to her surroundings. She gathered in the whole, stage and players and people in one wide impression, and absorbed it and enjoyed it. She laughed at the comedy and wept. She and the gaudy woman next to her wept over the tragedy, and they talked a little together over it, and the gaudy woman wiped her eyes and sniffled on a tiny square of filmy, perfumed lace and passed little Mrs. Summers her box of candy. The play was over, the music ceased, the crowd filed out. It was like a dream ended, People scattered in all directions. Mrs. Summers went to the corner and waited for the cable car. A man with keen eyes who sat opposite to her seemed to like the study of her small, pale face. It puzzled him to decipher what he saw there. In truth he saw nothing, unless he were wizard enough to detect a poignant wish, a powerful longing that the cable car would never stop anywhere but go on and on with her forever.
You've been listening to Desiree's Baby and a Pair of Silk Stockings by Kate Chopin. Chopin was a controversial figure during her lifetime, and because of her fierce independence and critical attitude, many critics of her time considered her stories immoral. Within a decade of her death in 1904, however, she was widely recognized as one of the leading writers of her time. Critic and literary historian Fred Louis Petit wrote that some of Chopin's work is equal to the best that has been produced in France or even in America. She displayed what may be described as a native aptitude for narration amounting almost to genius. Her stories and novels remain in print to this day. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, please stay safe, all the best. Thank you.